You're listening to a resource from the Field Church in Mandeville, Louisiana. It is our joy to glorify God by treasuring Jesus in the preaching of His Word. We pray this resource will be a tool used to aid in your relationship with Christ in addition to your local church. Blood of Jesus, nothing but the blood. Nothing but the blood of Jesus, nothing but the blood. Nothing but the blood of Jesus, nothing but the blood. Nothing but the blood of Jesus, nothing but the blood. Well, amen. Good morning, Field Church. I am not Brother Sam. (laughs) Let's turn to Luke chapter 13, shall we? Continue on as we've been doing for quite some time now. Luke chapter 13, verses 10 through 17. Luke chapter 13, verses 10 through 17. So let's read. Now, this is Jesus. He was teaching in one of the synagogues on the Sabbath. And behold, there was a woman who had a disabling spirit for 18 years. She was bent over and could not fully straighten herself. When Jesus saw her, he called her over and said to her, woman, you are freed from your disability. And he laid his hands on her and immediately she was made straight and she glorified God. But the ruler of the synagogue, indignant because Jesus had healed on the Sabbath, said to the people, There are six days in which work ought to be done. Come on those days and be healed and not on the Sabbath day. Then the Lord answered him, you hypocrites, does not each of you on the Sabbath untie his ox or his donkey from the manger and lead it away to water? And ought not this woman, a daughter of Abraham, whom Satan has bound for 18 years, be loosed from this bond on the Sabbath day? And... As he said these things, all his adversaries were put to shame, and all the people rejoiced at all the glorious things that were done by him. This is a fairly simple scripture passage, but as we read through the Bible, there's more and more layers that we can peel back from. We have a woman who has been ill for 18 years. She's, she's bent over. As you read the commentaries, it said she was bent over and almost walking like an animal, like a dog on all four. And there was no way that she could straighten herself up. So we have this woman in the community there. And we have the synagogue where the people would meet on the Sabbath. And we have the religious leaders sitting around the room, probably in a room not much larger than this. And we have Jesus standing there teaching What can we learn from this? Again, it seems to be a fairly simple passage. The woman has a physical ailment. Jesus lovingly heals her, and the religious leaders get furious. They're outraged because he had violated a ceremonial law by conducting a miracle on the wrong day of the week. I wonder how this religious leader would have reacted had it been his daughter or his son or him who was bent over and in no way could straighten himself up the depravity of man. So as we dive into these scriptures here this morning, there's something we should always do. And there's a couple of lessons here I'd like us to go over before we get back into the scripture. I think that'll be an advantage to you. There are a few lessons that we always need to put in place before we read the scripture. Okay, we can take Proverbs and Psalms and simply open them up. And there's not a lot of context there that has to be pulled out of it. It's fairly straightforward and simple. But when we're studying scripture in depth, one of the things that we need to do is ensure that we understand, and this is very important, everything in the Bible is written for us, but not everything is written to us. Everything in the Bible is written for us, but not everything is written to us. For example, the Ten Commandments, they're written for us and to us. Do not lie, do not murder, do not covet. Do not look with lust. Do not disrespect your parents. That is for us, and it's also to us to do these things. Now, there are other ceremonial laws and other things in the Old Testament that are no longer applicable, such as one of the things we commonly hear when we're out, I'm out doing open-air preaching or we're doing, Kathy and I are doing evangelism and so forth, is this comes up fairly regularly. Oh, you people, you're you're those Christians, and I, I see you have a shirt on that's, 
You know, you're wearing a shirt with mixed fabrics. Or you're not supposed to eat shellfish. You know, if you're a Christian, that'd be really tough here where we live, wouldn't it? Exactly. Love those crawfish. But you'll hear this. Oh, you're not supposed to be wearing clothes with mixed fabrics. Or you're not supposed to be um, eating shellfish and things like that. Well, those laws are in the Old Testament. Those were written for those people at that time. They're no longer applicable to us. Now, I'm going to use a word that makes me feel really smart, and I like to throw it out whenever I can. Those laws have been abrogated. Abrogated. You know what that meant? That's impressive. Huh? I thought it was my thing. Thanks for stealing my thunder, man. All right. Those old testimony, uh, testament, old covenant ceremonial laws have been abrogated or superseded by what Jesus has done and what he has fulfilled in the New Testament. We're no longer under these old laws, including the Sabbath laws. And we're going to talk more about the Sabbath in just a moment. Now, what the religious leaders had done is they had piled on more and more laws, things that you could and could not do on the Sabbath. We're no longer under those Old Testament Sabbath laws. They no longer are applicable to us. These religious leaders had done what all good bureaucrats do. Once they had a position of authority and a power, it's like I remember as a young person reading Ronald Reagan's autobiography. And his, Ronald Reagan's father was a, uh, a politician in a small town. And he told his son Ronald when he first got into politics, he said, listen, son, the first rule of any bureaucracy is to always protect the bureaucracy. The first rule of a bureaucracy is to protect the bureaucracy. Nothing about the people that are under this bureaucracy. So that's what we have right here. We have these um, Jewish leaders, in particular regarding the Sabbath laws. They had concocted had concocted dozens of absurd, confusing, impossible-to-follow rules. These things that you were and were not supposed to do on the Sabbath. And apparently one of them was committing or performing a miracle. They considered, this religious leader considered performing a miracle to be work. And what these men were, what this man was, and there's more than one that's there because it, it, it gives to a plurality towards the end of the verses there. They were all put to shame. What these men were, were they were professional religionists. They were religious bureaucrats. They had no concern for the people that they were to be ministering to. They were professional religious bureaucrats, more concerned about the letter of the law versus the spirit of the law. Now, for the last 22 years, I've been employed as a federal law enforcement agent. I work for United States Customs. I fly airplanes and helicopters and jets in the counter-drug mission. And one of the things that we're taught when we first go to the academy is letter of the law versus spirit of the law. Now, there's some things that if, they, if the person willingly, knowfully, deliberately falsifies, intentionally does this, we've got some letter of the law going on there. You knew what you were doing. You did it intentionally, knowingly, willfully. You were intentionally deceptive. You intended to defraud or lie. That's a letter of the law issue. There's going to be some serious accountability with that. And then we have the spirit of the law. Now, we've, I've talked to a lot of people doing interviews and so forth in the course of my job, and a lot of the time I apply the spirit of the law. Now, if I land behind you in the helicopter and you've got 400 pounds of, or 400 kilos of cocaine in your airplane, we got a little spirit letter of the law going. You know what I'm saying there? You're going to jail. There's no debate here on this. But if, you, if I land behind you and you don't have any drugs and I do a pilot certificate inspection and you don't have your medical with you or you don't have your pilot's license with you, you have one. It's not suspended. It's not revoked. It's, you, you do have one, but you left it at home. We're going to have some spirit of the law there, right? Totality of the circumstances. Well, that's not what these men were. These men were letter of the law. Imagine that. This woman comes in. This is a small community, unlike you and I, you know, they never traveled more than about 50 miles from where they lived. Everybody knew this woman, and she had been in this condition for 18 years. We don't know how old she was. She could have been 28 or 38 or 58. We don't know. But imagine that, a, a woman. Imagine if a woman came in here right now, basically walking on all fours. Imagine the, how she opened her up 
opened herself up to scorn and ridicule. People aren't any different today than they were back then. It's the same thing, cruel people. You know, imagine the glances and, and, the, and the smirks and the stares and the, and the whispers as she went to the market or went to the store or, or came to the, the synagogue. Yet her faith was such that she was not going to be denied coming in there. And these religious leaders, they knew her. Everybody knew her. And Jesus did what he did. And what did the religious leader default to? He was outraged. He was angry. He was furious that Jesus would violate one of these ceremonial laws, the depravity of man, that Jesus would do this on a Sabbath. Now, speaking of the Sabbath, people will often ask, <clears throat> biblically speaking, what is the day, what day is the Sabbath, and what day should we attend church and so forth? Well, traditionally, you and I as Protestant Christians, Having church, what we call church on Sunday is a tradition. We can worship God any day of the week. We do this traditionally because this is the day that Jesus rose from the grave. The Puritans used to call this the Lord's Day. And it used to be the phrase well before our time. It, would, it was called Sunday go to meeting. This really isn't the church. You and I are the church. Our default position is out in the world, in the world but not of the world. And then we come here and meet on Sunday. We should all be talking about everything that took place during the week as the church. Jesus is no longer walking on the earth. He sends us out when we're converted, when we repent, turn from our sins and put our trust in Jesus, and we get a new nature. It's called being born again. When this happens, we're, we're out in the world. We are indeed the hands and the feet of, of Jesus. You are. I am. That's what we're to be doing. And we come here on Sunday and we meet. Sunday come to meeting. All genuine believers all over the world are theologically, we are the church. No matter where we go in the world, if we meet another born-again Christian, and perhaps you've had this uh, happen to you before, you meet someone that is a stranger and you have this intuitive relationship with them. You don't even know them. And you go, I bet that person's a Christian. And you find out that they are. And you have this immediate bond with them immediately. Why is that? It's because you are of the family of God. You are members of the church. This is what we do. We have this immediate bond with each other. Now, I like to fly airplanes. I have my own airplanes and things like that. And I like talking about airplanes and motorcycles and all those things that I enjoy. And we go to these events and so forth. But guess what? When we start talking about airplanes with someone, that conversation can only go so far. We're going to go ride motorbikes or hiking or camping or whatever it is we do for fun. And you meet someone that's not a Christian. Yeah, they're nice people. They're great people. The guys I work with are, are great guys. I trust them with my life, literally. But that conversation can only go so far. And why is that? They're not a born-again believer in Christ. So why is it that when you meet someone that is a born-again believer in Christ, you don't know anything about them, you have this immediate bond? Is that of your doing or is that of the Holy Spirit's doing? That is of the Holy Spirit's doing. That's why we are the church. We are to be out in the world doing what God has called us to do. So back to the Sabbath. Can we worship God on any day? Yes, we can. Mark chapter 2, verses 27 and 28. Mark chapter 2, verses 27 and 28. Here Jesus was speaking to the religious leaders. Same situation. And he said to them, the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. Therefore, the son of man is also the Lord of the Sabbath. He's telling these religious leaders, he's on, he's invading their turf. He's coming in there and he's disrupting everything. And what's the first rule of a bureaucracy? Protect the bureaucracy. In other words, we're not confined to a particular day to worship the Lord. We can worship him anytime. We are not subject to the Sabbath, but the Sabbath was made for us. John MacArthur says, and if you don't have a study Bible, I would highly recommend the John MacArthur Study Bible. I've found no better, and I've got tons of them. John MacArthur Study Bible. God instituted the Sabbath to benefit man by giving him a day to rest from his labors. And what did God do on the seventh day of creation? He rested. And to be a blessing to him, 
The Pharisees turned it into a burden. It made man a slave to the myriad of of their man-made regulations. Jesus claimed he was greater than the Sabbath and thus was God. Based on that authority, Jesus could in fact reject these religious leaders, the Pharisees. He could reject their regulations concerning the Sabbath and restore God's original intention for the Sabbath observance, <clears throat> observance to be a blessing and not a burden. Now, back into the synagogue. These Sabbath laws were entrenched in Jewish society and had been for thousands of years. So what does Jesus do here in other places in the, in, in other places in the New Testament where he violates these man-made Sabbath laws? And he does it in front of the religious leaders. Is it, this is a very radical departure from the ingrained traditions. So one of the things that we want to do when we're, we're studying scripture, there are verses, and, and you'll, you'll, it'll be intuitive to you where you go, man, what would I do? What should I do? You know, do not steal, do not murder, so forth. Yeah, we put ourselves in those verses, okay? Those are for us and to us. So now we have the verses at hand this morning, this drama being played out. We don't want to put ourselves in here. What we want to do is kind of detach from this and go up into the balcony and we're looking down and we're, we're taking, we see taking all of this in and we see the players. We see Jesus and we see the, the regular folks the, that are there to worship and, and, to, and to be taught and, and to listen to these speakers and so forth. And we see the, the woman coming in. We, we want to observe all this. And we want to we wanna see what is going on here and, and see how everybody is interacting. So we have today's verses about this arrogant, prideful, legalistic religious leader and a miraculously healed, faithful woman. These verses are for us and to us. So to observe this, again, we need to have something of a detached presence where we can back up and observe all that is going on. And what this does... This, is, this allows us to understand the deeper things of theology, the deeper things of theology. This is how the Christian, you and I, are matured and sanctified and how we grow in the Lord, how we're prepared for spiritual warfare. This is the heavy theological um, lifting that is required. And if you're wondering why many Christians never seem to mature or grow, I had a conversation recently with someone that's like we... <laughs> I hadn't seen him in years, and we, many years, and we picked up the conversation, is, and he's, we're having a conversation about the same thing that was going on in his life 20 years ago. It's like nothing had changed in these 20 years. So if you're wondering why many Christians never seem to grow or mature, this is why. They're lazy. They don't want to do the heavy lifting of theology. And people are always saying, oh, I want to be used of God. I want to be used of God. I, uh, you know, what is God's will for my life? Well, it's, there's, there's a very simple question that follows that is, what have you done to prepare yourself to be used of God? Are you prepared? Are you disciplined? Are you on the narrow path? Are you in the game? Are you in the fight? You know, put me in coach. Are you ready? Are you prayed up? Are you practiced? Are you prepared? Are you ready to go? Memory verses, invaluable. You know, committing these things to memory, we can't always pull out our Bible or our little Gideon New Testament. We need to have certain scriptures foundationally, certain foundational scriptures in our mind, in our brain. And mom and dad, let me tell you something. You need to be teaching that to your children at an early age, very early age. It's that primacy of learning, what they learn as young people. And you're not going to be perfect in case you haven't noticed. But teach your children young. Teach them early in life. Set the example. Open the Bible. Let them see mom and dad, or if you're a single mom, which is the hardest job in the world, let them see mom reading the Bible, dad reading the Bible, the man being the leader of the house, being the spiritual leader of the family. Commit these things to memory because when we're out, which we are 99.9999% of the time, we're not here. We don't have 
Taylor and Tanner and Josh and Brother Sam and Chad to ask them questions. You know, as a pilot, let me let you in on a little secret. I used to be an airline pilot a long, <clears throat> an airline pilot a long time ago. Let me tell you what the two pilots are thinking about as they roll out on the runway. As they roll out on the runway, American 4552, you're clear for takeoff. Roger, 4552, clear to go. The pilot flying pushes the power up. The thing he is thinking about right now is what are my memory items if I have an engine failure after a particular speed? We're too fast to abort on the runway. We're gonna continue. Even if we're still on the runway, there's a speed that you reach. And if you have an engine failure, you're going to continue into flight because you're already going too fast to be able to stop on the amount of runway that's remaining. There'll be a test later, okay? <laughs> Those two guys are thinking this. If I have an engine failure at the speed called V1, what are my memory items? For the airplane that I'm flying right now, it's a two-engine airplane, if I have an engine failure at what's called V1, max power, positive rate, gear up V2, confirm the auto feather. V2 to 400 feet, we're not gonna do anything below 400 feet except feather a prop that hasn't feathered. Identify and verify V2 to 400 feet, FLC 135. Any questions? <laughs> do you want that pilot digging out the handbook when that engine, one of those engines fails? You don't have time. This is a memory item. There are certain things we do later, I will get out the checklist and we'll make sure that we've done everything accordingly. But in that moment, it's max power, positive rate, gear up V2, confirm the auto feather. It's a memory item. You need to have scriptures down, memory scriptures down that you can pull up just like that about the exclusivity of Jesus, about the Bible being the only way. What does it take to be saved? You need to repent, turn from your sins, and put your trust in Jesus Christ. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. If any man is in Christ, he is a new creation. Old things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. You need to have your arguments, your apologetics down for abortion, and I've done some terrible things, and I don't think God could ever forgive me. You need to have those, and it's not that hard. It really isn't. One of the most amazing things Kathy and I have learned over our 11 years of going to all over the country, Mardi Gras, Super Bowl, LA, Hollywood Boulevard, Southeastern, LSU, UCLA, San Diego, it doesn't matter. There's, there's only about a handful of arguments against what you and I believe as, as Christians. Commit some of these foundational verses to memory so that you'll have them right there. When you get that, that V1 cut, spiritually speaking, you're ready to go. And when we do these things, we're showing God that we are disciplining ourselves. We are on the narrow path. We are in the spiritual fight. We are in the game. And we're gonna see what Paul and Luke, where they're at when they wrote these verses to us. And I wonder what our, our attitude and response would have been if we had been going through what they were going through when they wrote these verses that we're studying here this morning. This is a fundamental um, this is a fundamental issue that you and I as Christians have got to have. Bible study, prayer, and you're doing it here today by coming to this theologically very sound church. Another thing is context. When we read the Bible, we read it in context. This is very important. Context. Who is the author? Who is the audience? What was going on? If you and I were to go out on the highway here, maybe down by Lakeshore Drive, Lakefront Drive there, and we saw a bright red Ferrari, brand new Ferrari driving by, and, and Thomas there said, man, that is one bad, wicked ride. If I were to write that down, and 200 years from now, somebody read that, depending upon the context, they could determine, hmm, that was either indeed a very poor mechanical vehicle, or that was a very... That was quite a compliment for that very nice car, right? What's the difference? Context. That's how we read the Bible. We want to read it in context. Brother Sam mentioned this a few Sundays ago. It's called authorial intent. What did the author intend for this to mean? So who is the author? Who is the audience? And what is going on at the time? What precipitated the writing of this letter? So back to our scripture at hand here. Why did Luke write this letter? 
And who did he write it to? Well, he wrote it to a man named Theophilus. We don't know anything about him. He must have been a man of some note. He was a believer, and that's all we know. As a matter of fact, we don't even know that much about Luke, except what was his profession? Yep, a physician. Luke was obviously a very humble man. So Luke wrote this letter to Theophilus, and it was intended for him, but it's also known as an epistle, which means it is intended for us to read and study it. It is for us, and most of it is to us. So Luke, so we're going to go back a little farther now, and we're going to see how, and we're going to bring all this forward to the verses at hand right now. And, and the reason that I do this is because I want you to understand we do not live as Christians in isolation. God does not call us to be lone ranger Christians. You're not off to be doing your own thing by yourself. Well, there's a whole host of reasons for that. But it shows how God is working all things for what? Our good and his glory. We need to be talking with each other, fellowshipping with each other, texting, emailing, phone. The phone still even work. You know, it's just, I'm, I'm lazy too. I'd rather text than, well, you get the picture. So we're all intermingled here. I only know a few of you. Kathy and I have been a member here for about a year. But we have a commonality as, as members of the family of God. That's what our staff uh, sings about and preaches about and teaches about. We need unity, okay? The persecution's at the doorstep for us here in America. Where are you gonna go? We need each other to be strengthened and encouraged. Your thing may not be my thing, right, with a spiritual gift, but we all work together. We need each other. So we have, we have Luke here, and he, and he wrote this letter to Theophilus. Okay, we know that he is a, a physician. And he wrote this letter about 30 years after Jesus, uh, after his uh, crucifixion. So where was Luke at when he wrote this? Here we go. We're going to go back even further to, again to show how God is working all this together. And there's no different difference between Luke and Paul and this woman than there is with us. I think one of the most amazing things that we're going to realize when we get to heaven is Luke is not a guy, and Paul is not certainly not Paul, is not a guy that looks like you know, Arnold Schwarzenegger. We're going to find that the men and women of the Bible are regular folks. They're like us. You, you may say, man, I'm, I'm, not a, I'm not a seminary graduate. I'm not a, I'm not a pastor. Well, neither am I. But you're born again. If you're born again, you, you're, you're qualified. Get in the fight. Don't waste your Christianity. Don't waste your heartbeats. And don't waste, waste your breaths that God has allowed you to have while we're alive here on earth. Don't waste it. And I can tell you, I'm 58, and as I look back on things, and I, I see a lot of the things that, I, that, that, you know, that draw us aside, and you waste time, and it's not necessarily sinful stuff, but as you get older, you realize that you reprioritize things in your life, and oh, to have done that as a young person, and to have these teachings of someone like we have here with our staff and our pastor to teach us these things prioritizing your life. Solomon talks about it in Ecclesiastes and in the book of Solomon to, to worship your creator in the days of your youth. You know, think of, you know, those of us that got saved later in life. Well, I was in my twenties. I wasn't that old, but you think about had you, had you gotten saved as a teenager or as, as a very young person, genuinely saved all the mistakes and heartache and, and things that you look back now upon and you're like, man, you just gives you a chill. When God says we're not to be doing something or we are to be doing something, it's very specific in here. It's very specific. When the Bible says thou shall not, here's what in essence God is saying to you and to me. He's saying don't do this because it's going to cause you harm. I want the best for you. Thou shall not, don't do this. Now, nobody said sin wasn't fun. Even in Hebrews, it talks about the passing pleasure of sin, but it comes with a terrible cost. And when God says, thou shall, he's saying, it is in your best interest, Christian, to do these things. So here we have Paul, or here we have Luke. And here's, here's a key point, you know, peeling back those layers of, of how did they get to write this letter? What, what were they doing? 
Well, Luke, as we know, was a doctor, and he was also a Gentile. Do you understand the relationship that the Jews and the Gentiles had with each other back then? It makes what's going on in our country now look like a big, you know, Captain Kangaroo love fest. The Jews and the Gentiles hated each other, despised each other. So now we have this man, Luke. Imagine if we had gone to him, someone had gone to him as a young person and said, hey, Gentile, listen, here's what's going to happen. You're going to be radically changed by this Jewish Messiah, and you're going to be changed from the inside out, and you're going to serve as a companion to this Jewish evangelist, and all the, here's all these adventures you're going to be going through. I'm sure Luke would have said, there's no way. There's no way this is going to happen. But this is what God does. In the Bible, there's the, Gentile, there's the Jews and there's the Gentiles, which is everybody else. And if you could make it an area of study to understand how much they, and we do mean, hated each other, despised each other, it, it makes this what, what, we, um, what Jesus does in the hearts of people even more amazing. You want the answer to all these you know, racial issues we have in America? And by the way, there's only one race. It's called the human race. Amen. You want an answer to this? Because when we're out open air preaching, and we go to Southeastern every Thursday. We weren't there the other day. I was out of town Thursday before, uh, what's say Sunday? Last Thursday, I was in Oklahoma working. The previous uh, Thursday, we were out there. And you get all the BLM signs, BLM, BLM, BLM. They're heckling us and all this. And it's not always just a, a, you know, antagonistical. We do have a lot of good conversations. But you want a you remedy for these racial issues that are confronting us in America today? It's called Galatians 3.28. There's neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, male nor female, for we are all one in Christ. Do you want someone to modify their behavior, change their behavior, or do you want someone to be changed from the inside out? That's what we want. Christianity is not, not about behavior modification. It's about being changed from the inside out. And this is what has happened to Luke. He's changed from the inside out, and he's now traveling with Paul. Where is Paul at? Paul is in Rome. And why is he in Rome? He's in Rome for being a Christian for preaching the gospel. He's under house arrest. Now, what would you and I be doing if we were under house arrest? We would be calling Morris, Bart, and everybody else, right? Get us out of here. Get me out of here. But listen, Paul did not waste his persecution. You and I don't need to waste our suffering physically, emotionally. Don't waste it. Here it is 2,000 years later, and we're being encouraged and motivated by a man, a fellow Christian, who was in, well, two years later, he's going to be in the dungeon and executed shortly after that. This is two years before that. He's under house arrest. He's been beaten, scourged, stoned, run out of town. Does he, does he drop in the fetal position and go, oh, this Christianity, this, this is difficult. I don't like this. No, I'm sure he didn't like it. But he didn't waste his suffering. He didn't waste his persecution. And here it is. Imagine if we'd gone to Paul while he was in, under house arrest in Rome and said, Paul, I, I want to tell you something. Um, what you're about to write here, the, these books, they're called the prison epistles, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, and Philemon. He wrote them while he's in jail. They're, gonna, these let, they're actually letters he's writing to different people or different churches. Let me tell you something. These letters are going to be written, are going to be read by billions of people. Billions. I know the Gideons have given out, I'm a Gideon also. I know we've given out over two billion Bibles, and I'm sure there's another billion or so that have been given out. They're going to be read by billions of people for at least 2,000 years. What? These letters right here? I, I, I'm sure he would have been amazed at that and probably a bit skeptical that his letters. So here he is in prison or under house arrest. He cannot leave. Does he waste his time? No. He's writing these letters. You know, Paul goes on these missionary journeys. It's just as if, 
You know, he comes to Mandeville, he goes to Baton Rouge, Dallas, San Antonio, Arkansas, Pensacola. He goes to all these places throughout, around the Mediterranean, and he's starting churches, and he's encouraging people. When he goes to Corinth, that's like being in the French Quarter and throwing San Francisco and Key West on Mardi Gras during Mardi Gras. That Corinth was the most, it was known as the most debaucherous city in the world. What did Paul do? Well, it's a good place to start a church. So Paul travels to all these places and he's writing letters back to the Christians in Mandeville, the Christians in Baton Rouge and Pensacola and Jacksonville and Little Rock. This is what this is. He's just traveling, but he gets arrested and he's in Rome now. And I bet as he's sitting there in the city of Rome, he's thinking about a verse, uh, uh, a letter that he had written a couple of years before. A couple of years before, he was in the city of Corinth, Greece, and he wrote to the Christians in Rome, and he told them certain things. And he wanted them to understand that what they're going to experience and what they're going to go through is for their good and for God's glory. You can look at that in Romans chapter 8, verse 28. That's why we now have our Bible here and underlining things. And how ironic that Paul is now indeed in Rome, and he's thinking, man, I wrote this to the Christians in Rome when I was in Corinth, and now I'm suffering. I'm being persecuted as I sit here in this jail. But he doesn't waste his time. He writes the prison epistles, as, we're, as they're called. And who's with him? Luke. Do you think Luke was motivated? Luke's watching Paul, and he's going, he's not wasting his time. He's not, woe is me. He's writing. He's doing what God has called him to do. He's not letting Satan pull a warrior off the spiritual battlefield. He's not letting Satan pull a warrior off the spiritual battlefield. What does it take to pull you off the spiritual battlefield? What does it take? If you're like me, not a whole lot. Satan loves to pull us off the battlefield. So here's Paul writing these letters and probably a whole lot more. These are the ones we know about. And Luke's watching this and he goes, you know what? While I'm here ment being mentored by Paul, traveling with Paul, we're companions in the ministry. I'm going with him. You know, he's given up his practice. He said, no, I'm going to be full-time in ministry. I'm going to go with Paul. And he's observing all this. And he goes, you know, it'd be a good time for me to do some writing also. So he wrote two letters. And one of them we call the book of Luke. And the other one we call the book of Acts, the Acts of the Apostles. Luke is encouraged by Paul. He's not going to waste his time. He's disciplined. He's on the narrow spiritual path. And here it is, 2,000 years later, and you and I are reading this, and we're being encouraged by it. How amazing is that? Your actions, too, are important as we're out in the world. How is your response? How is your activities? How is your language? Facebook. Is it encouraging to the Christians? If someone didn't know you and came across your Facebook page, I don't have one, so you can't bust me. Is your Facebook say, you know, this person, you know, serious about the Lord. Yeah, we have hobbies and fun things. God provides all those for us, of course. But does your Facebook go, man, that, that guy, that girl, that family, those kids, man, they're, they're, they're pretty serious about the Lord. And you know what? I needed to see that today. Or is your Facebook page and your language and your social activities providing good spiritual food to me, to your neighbors? What type of spiritual food are you, are you sending out? Are you providing we need to be like Paul. We need to be like um, Luke. Nothing deters us. So are you getting a clearer understanding how God is working all of these things in his church? We're not Lone Ranger Christians. The providential, which means God's working, physical working in our lives, physically the things he allows us to do. The providential activity of God in the life of his church is all working together for his purpose and his outcome. So back to the verse at hand here. As Luke writes this from Rome. Note that there are two spontaneous reactions in our verses this morning. One of praise from the woman and the other of a self-absorbed 
one of self-absorption, one of pridefulness, and one of condemnation. One glorifies God, and the other rebukes God. Let's go back up into the balcony. Jesus is standing there, and you think of it, that man rebuked God. You get the nature of that? He rebuked God right there. One glorified God and the other was outraged that God would break, or that this man Jesus would break some, you know, bureaucratic, ceremonial, ecclesiastical law. So back, let's go to the verses again here as we kind of head towards the end. And now Jesus was teaching in one of the synagogues on the Sabbath, teaching. Note here, you got to go where the people are. Why do we open air preach at Southeastern and LSU and Mardi Gras? You got to go where the people are, right? I mean, I can go preach out in the fields to the cows, but it's not going to do any good. We're to be in the world. We're to be handing out gospel tracts. We're to be salt and light. You got to go where the unsaved people are. You know, there's a big kerfuffle many years ago. The Southern Baptist Convention held its um, annual convention in Las Vegas. I'm like, that's exactly where they need to be if they'll go out and do what they're supposed to do. I don't know if they did or not. I'm going to assume they did, take the high road. I have the spiritual gift of sarcasm and, you know, <laughs> judgment. Uh, yeah, and Kathy reminds me all the time, that's not a spiritual gift. <laughs> yeah, that Vegas, that's where they should be, right? Go give out gospel tracts. Go give out some New Testaments. Go witness to people. You got to go where the people are. Plant, and I'm not big on cliches, but it's a good one. Plant where you've been, or grow where you've been planted. You know, most of us are not full-time ministry. I'm not, you know, I have a regular job. Be that person, you know. You notice people at work about to cuss and they'll catch catch themselves or they'll apologize because you're the holy roller in the office, you know. I get it all the time, you know. There's just a couple of us there. And they'll, that language will come out and I'll see them there like, you know, catch themselves. Okay, maybe... Some way we're making a difference. Go where the people are. Verse 11, and behold, so here comes the woman, and this behold denotes that, like, it's like, everybody look. It's like, behold this, and she comes in. And behold, there was a woman who had a disabling spirit for 18 years. Let's talk about her. We don't know anything about her. Again, we don't know how old she was. Was she 28, 58, 38, married, kids? We don't know anything about her. We do know through the commentaries that it is believed she was a believer. She was a believer. So here's this woman. She comes in. Now, let's, let's, go, let's go to her. Let's talk about this. We talked about Luke. We talked about Paul. The woman, it was believed uh, and by the Jewish people at that time and other uh, uh, religious circles today, if you're uh, poor or you're unhealthy, you have a cripple, you're crippled or something terrible happens to you, it's, you're out of favor, it's believed you're out of favor with God. Of course, we know that's not true. We live in a sinful and broken world. Uh, so at that time, it was, it was just assumed, you know, through this arrogance that this woman had done something to displease God, and God had gave her this disabling spirit. God does not do that. He doesn't give you cancer. He doesn't put you in a car wreck. He doesn't make you a drug addict. We do that, well, a couple of those things on our own. It's the choices that we make. So this woman, and she knew she had done nothing wrong. Imagine if we had gone to her, imagine if it was you, or it could be a guy, and said, listen, you're 18 years old. I got a little plan for you here. For the next 18 years, through no fault of your own, you're going to be bent over 90 degrees and in no way can straighten yourself up. And it's going to be for the glory of God. You on board? This woman was a believer. I don't know if she became, when she became a believer. We don't know anything about her. We'll all get together when we get to heaven, right, and ask her. Literally, we can ask her, how did this, how did this work? How did this happen? 18 years, she suffered for the Lord, and she didn't know any of this. All she knew was that she was bent over and had to almost walk like, like a dog for a woman. That also made her ceremonially unclean. She probably wasn't even supposed to be in the synagogue. 18 years, you're going to suffer. Don't 
waste your suffering. Have your theology of suffering in place before it hits you. It's one of those quick memory items. We don't need to be scrambling and getting the, you know, the checklist out. Okay, I've, I've got this. It's, it's befallen me. What do I do? Well, we can do that, but we need to have our theology of suffering and persecution in place before it occurs. So she had a disabling spirit for 18 years. She was bent over and could not fully straighten herself. When Jesus saw her, he called her over and said to her, woman, and that's not like if I were to say to my wife, hey, woman, come here. You know, everybody go, man, you, you know, that's a little inappropriate. It's, in context here, it's like, dear, sweet, kind woman, ma'am, as we say here, down here, ma'am. It, it's a term of uh, endearment and affection in context here. It's not... You know, hey, woman, you know, how well would that go over at your house? You know, yeah, not well. Put that on Facebook. So it's a term of endearment. So there's a lot going on right here. She was ceremonially uncleaned. Everybody in town knew about her. Everybody saw her. Everybody knew her condition. She comes into the synagogue. She probably wasn't even supposed to be there, but commentaries say she must have been a regular member, she, or a regular attender. She comes in. Jesus sees her. Now, all these social nuances that are being played out here, it's hard for us to understand. She comes in, and, and the normal reaction is like, hope she doesn't sit by me. Hope she doesn't sit by me. But what does Jesus do? Unsolicited, come. He doesn't cast this demon out like the demon-possessed man. But he unsolicited, he calls her over. Jesus has compassion for the hurting. That's what Jesus does. He calls her over to him. And he says to her, woman, you are freed from your disability. And then he did something even more amazing. He laid his hands on her. He just didn't do that. It was just unheard of in that type of society. And immediately... She was made straight. And then what, she, what did she do then? Glorified God. That's the default reaction of a genuine Christian. No matter what is going on, it's the default reaction. You know, in law enforcement, one of the things that they teach us is when you're interviewing someone and however the conversation is going, and I, I kind of I accuse you of something. I, we do this on purpose to see what your default reaction is. And if I accuse you of something and you didn't do it, a spontaneous utterance, a default outburst, or a sudden outburst is, I didn't do that. We tend to put a lot of uh, validity in that you're telling the truth. It wasn't a planned, measured response. I didn't do that. It just came out of you. It was a default response. Okay, maybe the guy didn't do it or, you know, okay, I'm kind of going to take the conversation that way. Her default response was to immediately glorify God. But what was the default response of the ruler of the synagogue? He was indignant because Jesus had healed on the Sabbath. He knew the woman. He saw what happened. He knew, knew it wasn't a you know, a Benny Hinn hoax. He knew this was real. The religious leader knew this was real. He didn't go down and question her and say, this is a, you know, a shenanigan here, or this is a setup. He knew it was real. And what was his default response? He was furious. He was outraged. He was indignant because Jesus had healed on the Sabbath. There are six days in which work ought to be done. Come on those days and be healed and not on the Sabbath. He's a professional religionist. He's a professional religious zealot. He's a professional bureaucrat. He has no interest in ministering to you and I, the people under his care. He's going to keep the rule of the law. Then the Lord answered him, you hypocrites. Evidently, seeing is not believing. He knew this had happened. You know, oftentimes when I'm at open-air open preaching and so forth, people will often say, well, I don't have enough evidence. And I'll tell them, you have just as much evidence as I do. You just choose to ignore it. The depravity of man in this text and other texts throughout Scripture, miracles are performed. 
and right in front of them, they know that it is real, know that it is indeed real, yet they deny it. I will not surrender my power. There's only three reasons people don't get saved or reject the gospel. Number one is I like my sin. That's the biggest one. Number two is this one, pride. I will bow the knee to no one, even if I see a very clear miracle being performed. Yet what is Jesus? Jesus is compassionate. And we'll just hold those three right there for just a second. Matthew 20, 34. Jesus has compassion for the hurting. He, Matthew 20, 34 says, he was moved with compassion. Jesus touched their eyes and immediately they regained their sight and followed him. Matthew 14, 14. When he went ashore, he saw a large crowd and felt compassion for them and healed their sick. And there are more verses here. I don't know if I, I gave John chapter 11, if I did or not. It's the story of, of Lazarus. Where have you laid him? Laid him? They said to Jesus, Lord, come and see. And Jesus wept because Lazarus was dead. So the Jews were saying, oh, see how he loved him. And here's another verse that you can study. It'll give you great encouragement. Isaiah 40, 40, 11. Study that one. Our Jesus is a compassionate savior. He, com he cares about you when you're hurting. He wants to give you guidance and he wants to give you direction. Seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all these things shall be added unto you. Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Lean not unto your own understanding and always acknowledge him and he shall direct your path, right? Proverbs 3, 5, and 6 should be a default that you can't continually play over in your mind when you're trying to determine what, your, what path the Lord wants you to take. Can we go back to my list, please? Yeah, the spontaneous reactions to the miracle. Also, I want to make a, a note of number two. Watch yourself. Watch yourself. See what your spontaneous reaction is sometimes. As a Christian, I've said a few things. That it's like, where did that come from? You know, we still have that little bit of that sinful nature, right? It's like, man, <laughs> be careful. Slow down. You know, like I said, Many of you probably have the spiritual gift of sarcasm and judgment also. Of course, I'm joking there, but watch yourself. Hold yourself to the same standard. If you find your spontaneous reaction to be drawn to looking at something you shouldn't be looking at or saying something or gossiping or, you know, fill in the blank, it's, it's an endless list. Watch your own spontaneous reaction. If it comes up wanting or short, that we need to make sure that we're doing the foundational things of God. Go to the Word of God. Study. Find a topic. Dive into it. Get all over the Bible. Study it. You know, there, there's no more blessing you can give to Brother Sam than to call him up or Chad or Taylor or Tanner or Josh or any of these, these mature young men and say, I was reading this. What does this mean? Avail yourself. This, the field church is a rare thing. I had just about, give, Kathy and I had just about given up on finding a church like this. We're from here. And we've been a member of a church for 14 years, another one for 10 years. And it was cool, it was good and all. And when a friend recommended this place and walked in and re immediately realized that uh, I got a lot more gray hair than the rest of you all. So, <laughs> and I see all the pastors up here. I'm like, oh boy, remember, judgment and sarcasm. I thought, oh boy, here we go. Because being a pilot, I've been everywhere. And when I go, I go to church, if I possibly can. I've been everywhere. And a lot of places, you go into a church and you see this, and it's, it's, it's a road show, man. Yeah. Like, or you go somewhere and it's a guy my age with skinny jeans and a bad-fitting rug trying to be hip and cool. And that is not a joke. I've heard people my age, pastors my age, tell, uh, uh, use filthy language. And I mean one of the big words from the pulpit. I've heard off-color jokes from the pulpit. You assume a guy looks like he's my age has been doing this for a while. So this church is personally has restored my confidence and faith in young pastors. The sobriety, the maturity, and everything that Pastor Sam and the staff does here is done with theological excellence. There's no gaps here. Everything is done just wonderfully from the way the worship team, um, Tanner and Taylor, they write their own music. Do you know how much effort that takes? And as Brother Sam 
and the other pastors preach through the word of God. Uh, I was talking with a young lady. It was right after we joined about a year ago and we were standing out there and she was just bursting. She's like, man, this is, she was new. She's like, this is so good. I mean, this is just unbelievable. You know, I go to these other churches and they're like telling stories and a little bit of God and a little bit of this and little, you know, she goes, why don't all pastors do this? And I thought, I'll tell you. And we had a nice conversation. I said, I'll tell you why. Preaching ex, uh, exegetically, expository preaching is hard work. Man, I, I don't know how much Brother Sam prepares, but it's probably 10 or 15 hours at least for these sermons. This is hard to do. We talk about discipline and being on the narrow path. This is what it takes to preach verse by verse through the Bible. Anybody can pick out a subject or a topic or whatever, and there's times for that. I, I get it. But the way that Brother Sam and his staff preach through here with absolute theological excellence is such a rarity and preaching for an hour, and I know you're thinking today it probably should be about half that, but I was talking with someone yesterday that's on a staff of a large church, and it's not that one over there, and I said, I'm going to be preaching tomorrow, and Kathy said he's going to be preaching for an hour, and they're like, an hour? I mean, a spontaneous utterance, an hour? Everything, this, this is such a blessing here, and it is such a blessing to our lives. So wrapping it up here. There are six days in which work ought to be done. Come on those days and be healed and not on the Sabbath. Do you get the incredulousness of this? Do you get it? We don't, I don't need to explain that, do you? The miracles, unbelievable. No, 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 not today. We're going to come tomorrow. Then the Lord answered him, you hypocrites. Does not each of you on the Sabbath untie his ox or his donkey from the manger and lead it away to water it? Ought not this woman, a daughter of Abraham, in other words, a true Jew, ought this, ought this daughter of Abraham, whom Satan has bound for 18 years, be loosed from this bond on the Sabbath? And he said these things. And uh, as he said these things, well, before I close out with these last, this last verse, listen, the Bible has all the answers that you'll ever need to all the questions you're going to get out there. You don't have to worry. It will never leave you wanting. You don't have to be afraid. i it has the answers for the most controversial subjects known to man, even today. It's not just a book. It's a collection of 66 books written by over 40 different authors over a 1,500-year period in three different languages on three different continents without a literal single error, contradiction, or mistake. You don't have to worry about anything. Go to the Word of God. It has the answers right here. And we're out open-air preaching and so forth and witnessing and giving out tracts or just day-to-day -day stuff. The Bible has the answers. You can have a conversation with someone and bring up the point, well, this is what the Bible has to say about that. Well, hey, I hear you, man. I know that's, that's, that's kind of a tough thing, but man, let me just tell you what the Bible has to say about that. And let their argument be with the Bible and not with you. It will not leave you wanting. There's only about a dozen arguments about, against what we believe it's not that hard. It really isn't. That's an amazing thing. I thought I was going to have to be an expert on plate tectonics and carbon-14 dating and all that when I first hit the streets. You don't have to know. I mean, if that's your thing, you know, Ken Ham answers in Genesis, if that's your thing, dive in. It's not my thing. I'm, you know, strong back and a weak mind. I need, you know, meat and potatoes stuff. You can use the Bible to counter these arguments, and that's what, that's what Jesus did right there. He said, and by saying that Satan had done this to her, there's a whole lot there. It's saying, this is no fault of her own. Why shouldn't she come here and be healed on the best day of the week, the Sabbath? You're the religious leader. She comes in here. Why shouldn't she be healed? And here's another thing. All these people are watching this. And they're hearing Jesus say, you can worship me on the Sabbath. We saw the... Um, or we can do miracles on the Sabbath. We can worship. We can worship God any day of the week. He's making these religious leaders look very bad. What's the first rule of a bureaucracy? Jesus had violated it, right? And, and so what does the religious leader do? He turns to the crowd. And you can always tell when somebody's losing an argument. They don't go to that person that made the point. They try to bring the crowd in against them. You know they're losing the argument. And that's what Jesus did. He used their own words against them. And finally... As he said these things, all his adversaries were put to shame, and all the people did what? They rejoiced at all the glorious things that were done by him. As they saw all of this taking place, 
the people saw all this taking place, they're probably thinking the same thing you and I did, would be doing. Why do we need these guys? I just saw what this guy did. I don't have to go through you people anymore. I don't have to go through you to have my sins forgiven. Now they're realizing that no more of this Old Testament shedding of the blood by the animals for the covering of the sin. I can go to this guy. This guy is washing away my sins. Why do I need you people? And don't believe that these religious leaders aren't picking up on all this. But all the people glorify God and all his adversaries were put to shame. Amen? So as we go from here this morning, think on these things. Think on all these things that we've talked about. Dive into the word of God. Be prayed up. Be practiced. Be prepared. Be an eminently qualified Christian. And then go out from here and do what God has called you to do. Amen? Amen. How about if I close in prayer? Father, thank you for the bounty that you provide in reading scripture. Thank you, Lord, that it is not hidden and we don't have to be theologians. We don't have to necessarily attend seminary to be able to glean the richness of scripture. Thank you, God, for these encouraging miracles of this sweet woman and Lord, how I look forward to meeting her in heaven and talking to her and and seeing, just please tell me about that, that wonderful day in the synagogue when Jesus was there and you walked in, how sweet that is going to be, Father. I thank you for my brothers and sisters in Christ that are here this morning, Lord. And Father, if there be anyone here, and, and I'm sure there is, that someone that doesn't know you personally, that they'll think of you, they'll think of their sins, they'll run to that cross, and they'll turn from their sins and repentance and put their faith in you this morning, Lord, and be born again with a new heart, with new desires. We ask all these things in the precious, sweet name of Jesus. Amen. Thanks for listening to this resource from the Field Church in Mandeville, Louisiana. We pray that it helps you joyfully make Jesus Christ your treasure.